This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. We are delighted to have joining with us today at the University of Virginia, Chris Krebs. He is the first director of the Federal Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, and he's going to be discussing a wide range of pressing national security and cybersecurity threats in response to questions from Center for Politics interns taking a course with us this semester. As the first director of CISA, previously the National Protection and Programs Directorate, Krebs was responsible for standing up the nation's first risk management-focused civilian agency. Mr. Krebs was fired in November 2020 after CISA declared in a statement that the 2020 election was the most secure in America's history. He found out he was fired when he got home from work, and a friend texted him to look at Twitter. As you'll hear later in this episode, Mr. Krebs is deeply concerned about election denialism. And one of the things he emphasizes in order to overcome it is to push good policy ideas and good policy outcomes. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Chris Krebs, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Politics is Everything. I want to start by asking you what you think are the most pressing national security threats facing the United States that aren't getting enough attention in the national news media. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's great to be back on grounds uh, and to because it's such a beautiful day. I, I, it's been a couple of decades, but I, I uh, recall fondly uh, walking to class on a day like this. So, um, I, look, I think there are a variety of everyday concerns that uh, America faces, that American businesses face, that American government agencies face. A lot of them are the more mundane uh, day-to-day cybersecurity risks. Um, we still have a greater uh, terrorism issue. Um, the, the thing that I think I spend the most time thinking over and worrying about is that there are uh, there we're in this new era of competition. We're in this new era of geopolitical conflict. In that we, as Americans, or really as Western governments, tend to think about things almost like businesses think about things. We think about things in political cycles. We think about things in uh, quarterly reporting cycles for publicly traded businesses, for instance. And so it's hard for us to really think about challenges that are over the horizon in maybe five to 10 years out. And this is manifesting in a way um, that a country like China can take advantage of and they can put together industrial policy and national strategies that have a 10 to 20 to 30 year arc. There is no way in uh, in American political life that, that that could happen because the way the political winds shift seemingly every four to eight years. And so you, you can't have an industrial policy. You can have a really cohesive, consistent national security approach. And so as I think about what we're dealing with from a global technology competitiveness perspective, and the, the most recent example is Last uh, fall, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, went to Taiwan and met with um, the TSMC, which is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, 
um, which is uh, the premier manufacturer and assembler of advanced semiconductors and microelectronics. And, you know, they're, they're based in Taiwan, uh, adjacent to China, obviously, uh, with some manufacturing in China as well, as well as they're building it out here in Arizona. And kind of the context or the backdrop for the conversation is that the United States had just passed the Chips and Science Act, which encouraged an, uh, innovation in domestic manufacturing of semiconductors and then put 50 billion of U.S. dollars against it uh, to, to create over the next 10 to 20 years this, this kid before. So it's like, yeah, we're trying. Um, but the, the chairman of TSMC says, hey, that's a nice start. And kind of the implication is that 50 billion isn't going to do much of anything. 500 billion might get you there. But when we're in an era of um, constant back and forth about the debt limit, and you see the initial proposal from House Republicans that it was a freeze on domestic non-defense spending, um, you know, where is that 450 billion going to come from that we might need to really step up to the plate on advanced technology investments, uh, otherwise recede to the Chinese. So that is, that's kind of what I spend the majority of my time thinking about is what is, what, what does the grid look like? What does the global economy look like from an influence and, and exertion of influence and power look like 10 years from now? And, you know, it doesn't necessarily look Great at the level of investment um, that that we're on right now. I, I do think though that if there's any area in American and Western politics uh, that there is uniform alignment of opinion, it is on American uh, geopolitical technology, uh, not necessarily domination, but but influence and power. And so, um, you know, my hope is that we were, we would get it together. We were assembling something that looks like a consistent. Um, and enduring industrial policy, uh, because we sure we're sure going to need it. Or, or you know, two years from now, um, it's going to be a much much different landscape. And and the issue here is that the series of laws, it's the values, it's the rule of law that exists in liberal democracies that are dictating how technology is developed. Um, when you come from an authoritarian autocratic country, that same set of principles and values baked into kind of the context of how technology is developed is not there. And that leads to much different outcomes that are fundamentally not good for, you know, individual liberties and, and uh, uh, you know, certainly our constitutional values. My name is Louis Hardesty. I'm a second year of class of The Senate Bill 686 Restrict Act states that its intention is to restrict foreign actors regarding privacy and security of U.S. citizens in the light of the issues surrounding TikTok. However, the draft legislation requires significant amendments to separate foreign actors from American citizens. Many opponents claim that it is a government overstep of power that is not just about banning TikTok, but instead that it grants the executive branch broad and unreviewable power to take authoritarian control over how we communicate, transact, and live. And what is your personal opinion on this draft bill given the post risks to privacy and constitutional rights of American citizens? How do you think this may impact cybersecurity efforts and the protection of sensitive data? So the Restrict Act, uh, co-sponsored by uh, Virginia's very own uh, Mark Warner, is, I think, undergoing exactly what legislation um, that is as impactful, as important as it needs to go through. And that's kind of, it's 
getting tossed around in the laboratory of democracy. So you introduce legislation, various groups across the political spectrum and interest spectrum come in and take a look at it and say, okay, this isn't clear, this could be refined. And you also have to assume that uh, drafters of legislation, legislative directors and others, you know, they see things one way, but it could be misinterpreted or viewed a different way. And you know, this is what happens for virtually every piece of legislation. Uh, there are views, you have hearings based on legislation, and you take feedback from uh, agencies, you take it from civil society groups. So that's what's happening with, with the Restrict Act. You know, I've, I've spoken with the senator and his staff on this. I am ultimately of the mind that a piece of legislation that looks like this or is directionally consistent with the Restrict Act um, is needed. But for me, it's, it's less about specifically targeting TikTok, which is I don't think what they're trying to do here. I think what they're starting from is a position that uh, we do not have a national privacy law that dictates what American information or the information of Americans, how can it be accessed by foreign actors, uh, foreign companies, foreign interests, and how do we protect ultimately uh, that access and movement of information? And yes, it does get brought up and run through the filter, the proxy argument that is TikTok. But, but here's the thing. We can sort the TikTok issue out, however long that takes. Um, but there, there are other apps that need to be reviewed. Uh, WeChat is probably the next up. It doesn't have 150 million users or downloads uh, like TikTok. But there are a number, any number of just starting with Chinese apps. And there are others out there, other countries, including Russian uh, sponsored apps. Um, but, you know, we, we have to have an overarching framework by which we can run these things, filter them through and understand how American information is being uh, treated. Now, I will say that India at this point has banned uh, on the order of 30, 40, some odd like that Chinese apps. They, they were acting much more draconianly, less nuanced of a position, I think. Um, so, so again, I think it's healthy that we're having this debate to make sure that we get it right and that it's uh, implemented or written and then implemented in a way that is respecting uh, individual constitutional protections across the range of uh, amendments that, that, you, that you mentioned. Um, all that said, there are still an, a set of issues that I don't know will be touched on by the Restrict Act specific to the TikTok uh, challenge that has been addressed or talked about in Washington, D.C. Again, TikTok is one of those areas where um, Republicans and Democrats are, are aligned in, in Washington uh, in their opposition. I'm not seeing that many in terms of breakaways or independent uh, you know, or, or, or sponsors. Now, that is not, uh, that is not um, withstanding significant lobbying and special interest investments by TikTok um, could end up being significant amounts of spending uh, to, to influence the Hill. So, uh, I, you know, I think restrict at this point is probably one of the it's probably got the best chance at this point of becoming something that looks like legislation that's got a good chance on the Hill. I think uh, there are a couple other bills out of the House. Um, Mike Gallagher is, is pulled together. So uh, yeah, this one's got, a, got, got good legs. It's got serious sponsorship by members. But it, it, you know, we, we have to take some of the feedback on board and improve and refine the legislation going forward. 
Earlier this week, classified Pentagon documents were leaked to social media containing information on the status of Ukraine's military and the location of some of, some of their units. Several news channels also shared that the documents contain information stating that the U.S. was pessimistic about the Ukrainian air defense, even though the Biden administration was preparing to send over an extra $2.6 billion in air defense systems. While some military analysts said that the leaked documents are not likely to change Russia's strategies, this is still a national security breach. How does this U.S. pessimism regarding Ukraine, while we are sending billions of dollars to help them win the war, affect our position as a power in relation to Russia and China? And how do national security agencies deal with the leaking of classified documents in general? So this is a, uh, a tricky issue that's evolving in real time. I think over the time period that I've been here on grounds today, um, it, it has come to light that they've, they've found the guy, apparently they've arrested him and he's in custody. And some more detail about who he is, where he's operating out of, and potentially some indications of what kind of access he had. And then from there, you can surmise how he possibly got the, the classified information. Uh, the real wrinkle here for me, though, as a former government official that has held a security clearance, uh, is that I actually have not reviewed any of the leaked materials. Because the trick is... Um, just because information was leaked into the public domain doesn't mean that it's immediately declassified. That would obviously be a, uh, a counter incentive or a negative incentive that would, that would suggest more people could, you know, get stuff out there by stealing it. Uh, so I, I actually don't know uh, to any great extent what's within these or really to any extent within the, the materials. So let me start with the second question of, of how does the national security community look at this? I think for quite some time, there have been um, reviews over how we handle and control sensitive and classified information, but even sensitive information that is not classified. And we've we've changed; they've changed over the last five to ten years. Uh, different classifications and different handling protocols for information that may not be classified but still sensitive. Uh, they've even come up with. Um, with entire designations and consolidations of, of labels for non-classified uh, information. But it does look, allegedly at least, that this stuff is very sensitive. It's also very recent, which I think is different from um, some of the more historical breaches. And in this one, I think from a, from a volume perspective, um, doesn't seem to be quite on the level of, of some of the other, you know, the, the Snowden leaks, or the Wikipedia, or I'm sorry, the WikiLeaks rather, of uh, the, the early teens. Those were, were significant volumes of, of data. This, these seem to be, you know, hundreds. Um, but, but the recency and uh, the, you know, if it's relevant to uh, current events, that, that brings some insight to, to the adversary. I do feel somewhat confident that, and there's a, I was listening to a podcast the other day on Lawfare blog, or I'm sorry, Lawfare with Rob Joyce, who's the head of the uh, National Security Agency counter, uh, I'm sorry, the Cybersecurity Directorate. And, you know, he mentioned kind of a truism is, you know, what's sensitive isn't what we know, it's how we know it. And so my hope is that even though this information is out there, um, how we've developed it, how we gained access through signals intelligence and hacking and other things, that's not in the documentation. It's, it's what we were able to derive and what some of the analysts were able to develop. So, you know, and that stuff has a shelf life, whether you like it or not. 
it has a shelf life. Um, but it's protecting those accesses and, the, and the, the means of gathering, collecting the information that, that should be protected. My hope is that, and my sense is that, again, the, the how we know it is not at risk here. It's more of the what we know. Um, so, so what do we need to do? Uh, I think there, I can only assume that there will be congressional hearings. There will be kind of blue ribbon committee reviews of how information is uh, stored how information is printed, how information is controlled and tracked. And, you know, it, it could be that whoever this guy is simply got information, got this, these, these documents um, because they had been discarded. You know, he didn't necessarily have access to them, but maybe they were in a burn bag or something like that, uh, you know, which is a classified way of storing discarded intelligence that would then subsequently get picked up and shredded they don't burn anymore, but right, maybe some places they do, but they, they would discard it properly. Um, so, you know, really kind of trying to think through some of the internal controls that need to be in place. But then again, like, I do think that access to these facilities, how information is printed out, intelligence is printed out. There has been a significant push um, over the last several years towards more digital uh, storage and consumption on devices you know, like iPads and things like that, rather than printing out. Because, you know, I've always had a view that information wants to be free. And, you know, that leads to people walking every now and then. And this is a huge issue, not just in the, in the um, intelligence community, it's also a corporate secrets issue. You know, right now, one of the biggest concerns that, that I hear from security, you know, cybersecurity officials and companies is insider threat. And it's industrial espionage, it's foreign intelligence services, it's people that are looking to steal stuff and sell it. And so they're really thinking through, how do I ensure that the people that need the access to the information, they're the only ones that can get it, and that that information is secure and they just can't walk out with it and it'd be sold or, you know, in this case, sounds like he was just doing it for clout or perhaps something even more, you know, disturbing and nefarious. Uh, but it's a, it, it's a challenge. Uh, we want decision makers, policy makers, um, people that can action to have access to the information. Uh, and you're, I think you're naturally going to make some over rotations and uh, people that, that shouldn't have access, they get it. So how do you then limit their ability to, uh, to, to cause harm? I think the silver lining here is that she was not stealing it, at least is what we know and, you know, sharing it directly with foreign power. Um, they eventually got to it. Um, but, but nonetheless, you know, this is hopefully not a longer term leak and something that he's just been doing briefly. And I know that's kind of trying to put lipstick on a pig. Um, but, you know, you, you've, you, from, a risk, from a risk assessment, damage assessment, I think that's kind of what, what the process is right now in the intelligence community. My name is Eleanor Jenkins. I'm a second year um, philosophy and politics double major. Um, and my question is, many social media platforms, including Twitter and Meta, have begun to use neural network models and machine learning to recommend content in ways that programmers often cannot predict. In the past month, Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak have called for a six-month halt on AI development to allow for further research on its consequences. From a national security perspective, are intelligence communities concerned about the rapid advancement of artificial intelligence and algorithms? 
So national security community, yes, they're concerned about AI and more importantly, large language models and machine learning and things like that, in part because it's dropping the barriers to entry for a broader range of threat actors. And what that means is that um, it's a lot easier to do stuff that used to be hard because a computer can do it for you now. You know, the compute power allows less skilled operators to move faster. And again, really good podcast. Um, do we get, I wonder if we can get referrals. You know, if you click, click the Lawfare interview with Rob Joyce, he talks okay. about this. And, you know, it, it's, it's speed to innovation and speed to action. If a chat GPT eight or even four, whatever, allows you to write code faster and understand a problem faster. And so you can act faster. That gives that person an advantage over someone that was previously kind of matching them at a different, at, at the old pace, now they're out, outmatched. So I think that's one of the, that's the real issue right now, at least for the next year or so that defenders are gonna be trying to stay at pace or on, uh, on, on track with the bad guys who can now perhaps write code faster. They can write phishing emails. I mean, look, we all get phishing emails every day. And one of the earlier or whether the most effective techniques to spot whether something is phishing is they misspell stuff. Or they use, you know, uh, you're expecting it from a, um, an American uh, or originating account, and yet it uses a British, uh, you know, syntax. And drops an extra U in there or something like that, or an S instead of a Z. These are the things that we, you know, intuitively key in on and say, this doesn't feel right. I'm not going to click on it. Well, you ask a large language model or something like a chat GPT to say, write me a phishing email. Um, now they, they can't because the barriers that are in there, but you can trick it or there are other models that can do it for you. Um, those start kind of those, those previous filters start dropping away. And so it's, it makes them more effective. Oddly enough, um, you know, one of the things I've seen is that, are we expecting GPT to write malware? Uh, the, you know, theoretically, yes. But again, I think there are some, some, uh, some barriers in place. And yes, they can spot vulnerabilities, but I don't think it's going to be necessarily at scale. And we are seeing companies like Microsoft that just last week released uh, something called Defender with Copilot. And Copilot is basically a, and, uh, you know, an AI, LLM, um, open AI supported defensive technique can actually can review your code while you write it and say, hey, this has a flaw in it or does some fuzzing for you and finds out what the, the vulnerabilities is so you can fix it in real time. Those are great things. Again, that's speed, that's innovation. It closes doors, avenues out for the bad guys, uh, bad guys first. On the developmental pause, um, I kind of got wind of this coming a couple of weeks before they released it. And I, I, I understand the place they're coming from. Uh, I just don't know if it's going to be useful. I mean, the genie's out of the bottle here. And our challenge is that we can be responsible or will be responsible. Um, you know, all that said, if we're struggling with privacy legislation at the federal level, I have a hard time understanding how, from a policy perspective, we're going to introduce effective policy on, you know, ensuring AI ethics and things of that nature. It just, I, I just don't know if we have that capability or capacity at the policy level. Uh, but look, do you think the Chinese care? No. 
And look, I mean, we do bring a different set of values and approaches uh, and a rule of law. Um, so we, we don't dictate our own approach based on what someone else like the Chinese may do. But nonetheless, you know, these things are moving forward. This is a technology that is into the, the broader ecosystem now. Uh, so the real emphasis, which I think they're trying to get to with the developmental pause is how do we reduce societal harms? Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know if the six month developmental pause is going to get us that outcome that we want. Um, what I would like to see it's less than a developmental pause. I would like to see a, uh, an integration pause. And what that really means is, yes, you can continue to develop these things, these technologies, but we need companies to be responsible when they integrate AI into production. You know, you, you just can't drop it out into the wild without really full thinking through and modeling it and red teaming it and testing it to ensure you're not going to have those bad outcomes. And we've already seen companies that have baked in uh, some of these, uh, some of these tools that have had negative outcomes. And those are the sorts of things that worry me. Then again, um, you know, it, it's not as of right now that as if these AI tools have their fingers on the buttons of anything, they can actually change outcomes. So here there was some, there was a, uh, um, there's a, a reporter that talked to, I guess, an open AI integration and a Microsoft product. And then the chat, Sydney, I guess, started threatening the reporter and said, I'm going to, you know, release all your sensitive information. So if you let your mind, it was like, oh my God, I've got a Hotmail or whatever account. Can they get into my account? Look at all my sensitive emails and things like that. And they can release that on the internet. So your brain kind of works through all these uh, outcomes. You're like, that is horrifying. I mean, this is Skynet. Uh, but in actuality, that that language model does not have that access. It, do, it does not have that ability to do those things. Now, can it go out and spin up a, another thing we've seen, uh, can the AI then trick a human to do something for it? Maybe we'll say that like that is, yes, that's, that's kind of one of those things of like, oh boy, that's scary. Um, but but it is, it is at a minimum useful to think through what the harms are and not just today, but five years down the road. What are some of the, the blockers that we can put in place? Um, as for how, uh, how social media platforms are integrating this stuff, um, it's not directly relevant, I think, to the AI conversation and kind of the long-term risk. But I do think that one of the key differentiators as we circle back to TikTok, one of the key differentiators between TikTok and uh, Instagram and, uh, and Facebook is that those, the kind of the legacy social media platforms are based on the social graph. So you would see stuff on Facebook in the, in the majority of it was based on your friends. So you would see stuff your friends were posting, your friends were liking, friends of your friends. TikTok flipped that all on his head. It's the, what are you interested in? What do you want to see? What's your dwell time on this? What are you clicking through on? So give you more and more content that fit to your interests. And, and so that is just a fundamentally different cognitive experience. And that is, I think, is why the, there's so much concern around the platform, uh, particularly from a, a, a child safety issue. You hear some of these things about kids that sign up and then within, you know, 10 minutes, they're served up self-harm videos and, and other things of that nature. So uh, there are, you know, first of all, we, we need to think about who should have access to this stuff. And then that reminds me of the Simpson episode, like, won't anybody think of the children? Um, 
but there, you know, there are tools that can be put in place. Um, but we also have to assume that kids are going to get all this stuff anyway. Like I, I, my kids have friends whose parents have signed them up for Instagram accounts at 12 or 13. And it makes my head spin because my kids are not, you know, from a brain cognitive development perspective, they're not ready for this. Uh, so we, we have to, we still have to kind of work through those lower end issues as well as the higher end developmental issues. I'm Dominical Fulano. I'm a second year uh, double majoring in public policy and sustainability. And I was just wondering what steps can individuals and organizations take to better protect themselves from cyber threats and what role does government play in promoting cybersecurity? So breaking those two things out, um, what individuals and in, in organizations will just use companies, um, starting with individuals. The, the example I like to use is, um, couple of years ago, I wanted to get my kid a smartwatch. And so I'd get on, I was with AT&T, look at at and It's like, great. You can have a Samsung watch or, a, uh, or an Apple watch. And I'm like, I'm not spending $500 on a watch and giving it to my kid. It's going to break it within, you know, two days, which happened. Um, so I'll go look on, um, on Amazon. I'll see what they have. And it's a bunch of noting or no brand stuff that you've never seen before. Um, and that you know, it all kind of boiled then down to trust. I was like, I don't recognize that brand name. I don't know if that company's going to be in business two years from now to support the software or firmware on that device. Do I really want my kid walking around with a location tracker and an open mic on their wrist? And so to kind of walk that back, yeah, guess what? I spent, you know, not 500, but I spent a couple hundred bucks on an Apple watch to put on my kid. Um, because it, it's a trusted brand. We know they value security. So the kind of key takeaway is look for, you know, don't go cheap. Uh, and I know this is like, it's easy to say for me, but, you know, you, brand recognition and value uh, signaling from a company matters. And so, you know, having a device that's a recognizable brand that talks about security, that, that talks about privacy, those are good things. And Apple has, has put an entire, uh, for instance, Apple, because uh, I see a couple in the room here, you know, they put an entire marketing program around user privacy and, and, and safety. And so that's something that you know, look for those indicators of trust uh, as an individual. Um, you know, from a, just a basic, uh, you know, what are some of the tools you can use? Uh, multi-factor authentication across everything that cares, that, that stores anything you care about whether it's financial information, personal information, social media platforms, you know, what's the worst thing that, that you can have is you can lose access to these accounts. Somebody else can drain your account or somebody can start posting as you. Use use multi-factor because there's a reputational issue. Also remember that, um, uh, that everything's forever on the internet. So, uh, you know, you'll know, be sensitive about the things you put, the, the, the you develop, you post, and you share. Uh, I like, a virtual private network for for most of my devices just to give a degree of anonymity i think i probably have a, a different threat model than most of you but you know vpns are are, are good um you know, strong passwords you always hear about strong passwords strong passwords if you can't put mfa on something and you know those are the the um the 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 password managers those help as well, but understand that they're not 
you know, they're not perfect and that companies have uh, some of the password managers have been uh, have been popped. Uh, but mainly just like be smart, think through uh, what you're doing, what you're doing online and, and you know, have the ability to uh, stand back up if you lose access to like, you know, the cloud's a good thing. So I, you know, I still recommend it. I, I was at a thing talking to a celebrity and she was asking, hey, uh, should I store my, my photos in, in iCloud? And I said, well, what are, you, what, what are you worried about? And I was like, do you have any racy photos or anything like that? He's like, no, it's like pictures of me and my dog. And I was like, well, I mean, what's the worst that could happen if it gets into iCloud, somebody gets in there and they've got pictures of you and your dog. Now you've got other more sensitive stuff that you don't want to share, maybe not, maybe do something different, but just kind of think through what your, your exposures are. Organizations, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, um, it's almost as if every technology is now a software company. It, I don't care if you're manufacturing, like literally, it's a great example. Okay, so there's a, a paper products uh, company. And I'm like, hey, this is a pretty simple problem, I think. You've got corporate IT, you've got some manufacturing IT. I mean, you guys make paper and you ship it around, like what's the big deal? It's like, no, no, you don't understand. Everything is smart packaging now. And the information that's collected on that box, that shipping that thing, I wouldn't know the temperature. I wouldn't know where it is. I wouldn't know what's around it. Because all that matters from a logistics perspective in data science. Data science is now, uh, which UVA is a great data science school, but, uh, everything is now becoming a, a data game. So I don't care what the product is, there's some sort of integration of data and software around it. Um, so companies need to think really deeply through what sort of data they're generating, how it's being used, how it's being stored, how it's being disposed of, because data storage is not free. It costs money to work with Microsoft and, and you know, Iron Mouth and all these other companies to store stuff. So think through how that's working. But then the underlying technology it remains a, you know, doing the basics really matters. And again, it, it's about identity. It's managing identity, ensuring that the people that have access to information should have access to that information, which sounds familiar, you know, comparing it to a security clearance and classified information. Um, make sure you, you know what devices are on and are supposed to be on your network. Um, make sure that you understand the people that have access to your networks, not just employees, but third parties, which is a, a, a thing that we're seeing right now is, uh, you know, there are, as a part of COVID, I think a lot of companies went through this radical digital transformation. They push everybody out to work from home uh, and they change the way the, that they do business internally. And they start really thinking through how do we, uh, how do, we, how do we streamline? How do we get these radical efficiencies into our operations? So everything's out. Well, HR is going to be outsourced. Uh, payroll is going to be outsourced. And yet those payroll and other business functions that you're, you've outsourced, whether they're a software you know, as a service or something else, someone else is still doing that. And so you have to have an understanding that, that they're still getting data. They still have access to money or they have something that you care about. You, know, you have to make sure that they're doing the right things as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a vendor management uh, uh, program and it's a, it's a third party risk management program. So uh, those are kind of the basics of the things we're, we're seeing on a daily basis, but ultimately 
what we recommend to, to companies is we try to orient your defenses around ransomware, which is really a, a threat. It's, it's a bunch of criminals that understand that everyone relies on technology and technology tends to get misconfigured or otherwise left uh, uh, in a vulnerable state. They come in, they take over your network and they say, give me a million bucks or whatever it is, see much more. Uh, or we're going to just, you know, destroy your network. And, and unfortunately, people pay because they need that data. They need their systems up and running. Uh, and they use things like Bitcoin. And ultimately, what we've seen increasingly, or at least more of late, is that that money ends up working through the cryptocurrency ecosystem and landing in Russia because the Russians don't care. That's just the reality of it. Uh, but if you can defend against those actors through you know, uh, good vulnerability management, configure your networks properly, ensuring that people have access, but also limiting damage when bad things happen. That actually also helps you not just for the criminal actors, but also for the more sophisticated state actors that are uh, coming out of the Russian and Chinese and North Korean security services. I have a quick follow-up question here before we move on. We know that about six out of 10 state and local governments experience attacks. What would you do to improve local government's cybersecurity capabilities? Uh, the, so the state and local issue, local government is not just government agencies, it's also schools. So I, you know, school systems go down on a regular basis and get locked up. Hospitals are an attractive target because they have just these massive, um, these massive networks. Colleges are actually, uh, colleges and universities tend to be uh, target, highly targeted as well, in part because just the open collaborative sharing environment. Uh, and it's also, there's huge networks with you. In some places you've got employees, but you've also got students that have access to the networks and sometimes the networks are actually managed by students. And so it, it creates this huge, um, this huge exposure and this opportunity space for the bad guys. So they, there are a couple of ways that we solve the problem. First is that uh, the technology vendors, those that make uh, and deploy the technologies, have to continue to focus on you know making sure that their products are secure by design, secure by de default. Uh, there's a big push in the federal government right now um, around uh, secure by design. In fact, there was just a, a recent, you know, I think it was like an eight seal. Uh, policy or principles paper that was pushed out by my old agency along with, you know, foreign and U.S. agencies. So making sure that the stuff goes out into the wild, because you, you, you kind of want to take a Pareto principle approach here, because you're not going to go out there and fix every single government agency at the state and local level one by one. You have to move upstream. You have to make it easier for them to be secure. You have to make sure that, that the users can't make decisions that put them in a bad position. So how do you do that? You, you just start with the core technology. Most of them use the same operating systems, the same mail systems, the same productivity systems or software. And so to the extent that we can start with that upstream dependency piece, make it easier to secure, I think that gets us a, a better outcome. Um, I also think we need to give them as much help as possible. One of the things that I prioritized and it also was um, that we needed more security advice out in the field. And so we had a, we now we, I think we've had, it has about 180 um, 
cybersecurity advisors uh, that are out and are really soon be out in the field. And, you know, my plan was every state capital, say up at the state level, and then you just have good guidance emanating down into the counties uh, in, in local jurisdictions. But it, there's no question that this is a longer term problem. It's one that's not getting solved overnight because you have, it costs money to both on the people side as well as the equipment side. Um, and, you know, when you're getting down to the end of the year budget, you're saying, hey, do we need to invest in a new IT system that's modern, that's running on current software? Or do we need a new elementary school because the other one, you know, got wiped out by whatever. So, you know, these are the realities of, you know, running governments at state and local level where you cannot run uh, a deficit. You know, the federal government has the luxury of being able to run in the, in the red uh, state and local governments cannot. They have to run balanced budgets. And that creates challenges at the end of the year, particularly, you know, still on the tails of COVID, where tax revenue in many jurisdictions was way, way, way down uh, because people weren't going out to eat. People weren't, you know, using as much gasoline. Um, so they, there are a number of different, uh, you know, challenges here. I last kind of idea that, that I had had, um, well, a number of us had had and kind of worked through is I'd like to see more regional coalitions for technology use and deployment where, you know, a county out by their own is never going to be successful. But if a county is partnered with, uh, you know, 10 more counties across the state or across a multi-state region, and they can work together to get economies of scale, they can get efficiencies in purchasing, um, and that they can have teams that protect uh, not just their own county, but other counties as well. And you can play a kind of more of an around the clock model. I think, I think that's got, um, you know, that's something that some, some jurisdictions were looking into um, that, that could be effective. Again, you know, this is, um, you know, it's cliche in cybersecurity, but, you know, these are team sports and then, you know, a, one jurisdiction or company on their own fighting against, uh, you know, particularly nation state or, where other more, and well, you know, some criminals that are motivated, you just, you know, you're not, you can't fight it on your own anymore. Um, there, there are global issues at play. So my name is Tim Watson. I'm a third year government major. And my question is, the University of Virginia has placed a lot of emphasis on the themes of democracy. And with election fraud, uh, with election fraud claims becoming the go-to claim for losing candidates, how do you foresee the future of fair and free elections in America? How, and how do you see the Republican Party and democracy going forward? The question about election fraud is the go-to, is the thing that, is the go-to excuse or claim for losing candidates is, is something that unfortunately I think is now kind of in the mainstream. Now we're seeing it right now still with uh, Kerry Lake, who's a governor uh, candidate uh, in Arizona um, that continues to, to make claims. And of course, the former president as well. Uh, it's, it, it is a it's never-ending target that allows for excuses and influence and grifting and power grabs and things of that nature. And, and I think if you look at particularly the fundraising that's, that it came on the heels of uh, the 2020 election. I mean, we're talking 250 million plus um, uh, into the coffers of uh, the former president. It, it shows that there's 
there's a pretty strong incentive structure around it for, for the candidates. So they'll continue to do it. I, I do think that uh, if the 22 midterms showed anything for Senate, for secretaries of state and some House members that were echoing the 2020 claims that um, I, I think sometimes when we look at social media, when we look at real media, perhaps we overestimate, uh, you know, we give a little bit too much, uh, I guess, weight to the louder voices rather than the volume of the voices. And I think the 22 midterms showed that I think there are a lot of voters out there that are sick of it. They're tired, they're exhausted, and they just want normalcy. And they just want, you know, good public policy leadership. Um, but then, it, you know, it pops right back up again and, and we share more and more of it. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing here is that I am of the mind that even in, in, in 20, but in 22 as well, that the idea was never to convince you that the, any one single thing happened or any one single thing was determinative of the election because you could easily debunk, you know, any number of their claims that would just move to the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then they'd put it again and say, oh, now you're, you know, you're censoring us or things like that. Um, it is a, it's never ending, uh, it's never ending, uh, uh, you know, fight. So it seems, and I think the way to get around it is, uh, or, or to overcome it is to continue to push good policy ideas, good policy outcomes, move forward, keep pushing uh, for, for, again, for better outcomes and the grievance politics and the negative politics and the fear politics, I think that that's got a shelf life. I think, you know, people just don't have that much of a, kind of a store to, to hear it. And they, they want to understand like, what's, what's in it for my kids? Like, what, what are we going to do about the education system? What are we going to do about, you know, safety? What are we, you know, this, that, or the other. So I, again, the, the politics of fear, they're very, very powerful. I mean, I think they've turned uh, recently even, you know, in governor's election. So uh, keep focusing on the, the positive. Uh, people will be more attracted to that in the longer term, I think. Assuming you kind of, you break through to me. Larry talks about this stuff all the time. Um, yes, it looks pretty dark. And yes, we tend to focus and, you know, we just kind of intellectually, unfortunately, hyper-focus on the negative things. Um, but I think there's still a lot of positive outcomes. There are a lot of pol uh, positive policy concepts out there. There are a lot of uh, positive candidates. And, and that's what frankly worries me um, as I think about 24 in the general and, and um, the Republican primaries. Uh, if, if the Republicans focus on uh, winning the primaries, then that's not going to be good for the general. But if they think about winning the general rather than the primaries, then it gets better for the country. Now, if you can't survive the primaries, get to the general, that's a different story. Um, but I, I do think there's some, some, uh, there's some good candidates out there. Uh, Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts is, is kind of a favorite of mine, Chris Anunu. Um, but you know, can they survive? Can, can they survive a, a Republican primary? I just, I, where are they even interested in? I don't know. I mean, that's the other thing. These things are just bloodbaths and it's a wide open field. Um, you know, assuming the, 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 the two that ran last time aren't back in at this, this go around. So, you know, hey, uh, at least you can say this about American politics is it's, it's never, uh, never a dull moment.
Because politics is everything. Well, Chris Krebs, thank you so much for ending us on that note about pushing for good policy ideas and good policy outcomes. It's hard work and the good ideas and the good people don't always get all the media attention. But you've given us a good reminder of where we should focus our attention. Thank you so much for discussing all of these pressing national security and cybersecurity threats with us here at the University of Virginia.